Film runs through our veins and continuously makes us interact with it. I'm your host, Edward Frumkin, and this is Real Print. In this episode, Ragtag Film Society's artistic director, Chloe Trainer, discusses the recognition of film programming as a skill, merging industry and local audiences, and having film festivals in the pandemic. Finally, in today's concluding thought, I talk about my recent walks and sprints. Some portions are recorded on Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio and enjoy the show. Thank you very much for stepping your time away from Ragtag Film Society operations, Chloe. Thanks for having me, Eddie. And as I start off with all my guests and now ask you, what's your first film memory? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think it's probably watching Disney movies. Um, we had an extensive VHS collection at home. Um, so I think probably watching Lady and the Tramp is one of my first movie uh memories uh which was more at home I don't actually remember the first film I saw in a cinema um but we did a lot of watching at home when we were kids mm-hmm. like did you think of it more as like family bonding together experiences or you want to maybe do something with film um from that early on I think it was just fun um it was more, when I was a teenager, I got very into going to Blockbuster to rent movies. Um, and it was then that I started to realize that maybe this was something I wanted to do as a job. I actually wanted to be an actor when I was a kid, which is like very at odds with who I am as a person, um, which is funny to look back on now. Um, but yeah, so I'd always kind of wanted to do something like creative. Um, and it wasn't until, yeah, it wasn't until much later that I even knew that film programming was like a job that you could do. So I went through all of the options of like being an actor and then I wanted to be um, a film critic and then I wanted to be a filmmaker and then eventually I ended up as a programmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I listened in like with your Diane Moxon interview, they wanted to like make movies like in a weird major of film and photography, if that, that was correct. Yes, yeah. So I studied cinema and photography at university. Um, and yeah, I thought I wanted to be a filmmaker um, and then realized I wasn't very good at making films. Um, but I really loved the whole process at the same time. But I just knew that what I was making was like not very good. It didn't feel very like natural. Um, and so, yeah, I realized quite quickly that being a filmmaker wasn't for me. Um, but yeah, I still wanted to do something with film and I realized um, that, yeah, there were other ways to be involved in the film industry than just making stuff yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know that you have done a lot with like the festival circus, like BFI and for the Doghouse, like what got you interested, like getting to more of that film festival circuit? Yeah, so when I was uh, just graduating university, I volunteered at a festival in the UK called Sheffield Docfest, which is like the largest documentary festival in the UK. Um, and that's when I realized that you could 
have that kind of job. Um, and so I, after I graduated and I moved back to London, I started to research like what other festivals there were um, happening in London. And I initially got involved um, with a festival called Underwire, which is a festival supporting female filmmaking talent across the crafts. So um, not only did we screen work from directors, but we also supported producers and screenwriters and then um, cinematographers, editors, uh, production designers, um, sound designers, um, kind of like all of the elements of making films, including the ones that are often really overlooked. Um, and that's that was my kind of start in the industry. Um, and doing that festival, I really realized that what I wanted to do was do stuff that was really closely related to filmmakers. Um, that festival was very much about building a community for film, female identifying filmmakers. Um, and it uh, that kind of uh, environment felt really special to me, um, less so than necessarily like the more public facing festivals, um, which were maybe a bit more about, um, you know, thinking about introducing audiences to new work. Like, obviously, that's always an element of a festival. But to me, the stuff that got me really excited was thinking about how to make a festival useful for filmmakers um, to kind of support their career moving forward. And so that's how I kind of got my start, which was a, a very kind of like a niche within a niche of wanting to do that very specific kind of film festival work. Mm -hmm. And like, as you were a festival producer at Underwire, um, do you produce not just like exhibiting the films, but also panels and some other talks and similar get-togethers related to the fest. Yeah, exactly. Underwire was, still is, as far as I'm aware, a completely volunteer-run organization. And so as the festival producer, I was involved in everything. Um, and I, yeah, was involved in programming the short films, but also, like you say, programming uh, what we would now kind of refer to as like an industry program. So we did a lot of talks that were specifically for filmmakers, um, a lot of panels and masterclasses that were specifically designed to kind of explore the craft of filmmaking um, and bring those people together to talk about it. Um, and yeah, that was the stuff that I really, really loved, like thinking about um, not only you know, what filmmakers you want to support in terms of sharing their work, but what voices elsewhere in the industry do you think would be useful to kind of put in conversation with each other? What were the issues that were going on in the industry that we wanted to draw attention to or, um, you know, kind of pose a question of what could be done differently within the industry? That's where all of that kind of programming um, was really exciting to me. And I think that kind of programming of like, you know, putting together a panel, putting together a masterclass is really overlooked as a skill because it is really um it's a really delicate kind of balancing act of personalities and perspectives and you know finding the right moderator to bring all, all of those things together and kind of weaving a story through um through the conversation that's actually useful for an audience so yeah I really have always enjoyed that side of things and underwire was like a great start to all of that um, and then we also did like parties and we had a networking event, which was called time of the month, which is now like very outdated um, name for something like that. Um, but yeah, we did lots of like stuff that was really specifically aimed at bringing filmmakers together. So, mm. yeah. 
I want to backtrack a little bit earlier about how people don't realize that when you get things together, they don't realize they're taking people's schedules out of their days, like to come to this fest. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's kind of important at thinking about who, like who you want in those spaces and how you create a space that's welcoming to everybody. Um, yeah, that's something that we always were thinking about and still think about now, definitely. Mm -hmm. As Underwire was all volunteer, like how do you manage like having a full-time job and or freelancing while doing this passionate festival that you love doing? Right, okay, yeah. So <laughs> it's very hard um, to do. I When I first started, I actually worked, um, I had like a day job working for a bus company um, in bus driver training and recruitment, um, which is something that's kind of funny in the US because like buses just aren't the same kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so I worked there, I think three days of the week. And then I had an internship that was like unpaid for the other two days of the week. Um, I was lucky enough that my parents lived in London. So I lived at home um, and didn't pay rent, which was incredibly, um, like I was incredibly privileged to have that possibility so that was for the first year after I graduated before I got any kind of paid work in the industry um, and I just worked a lot of evenings and weekends to be honest um, I was lucky that my day job was very mindless um, and so and it was really like when I left the office I didn't think about that job ever again um, until I went back in the next morning. Um, and so I was able to use all of like my headspace um, properly on the more creative things that I was pursuing. Um, but it was, yeah, it's really tough. And it's something that I don't really know how to like square away with myself in terms of like the inequalities within the industry that it meant doing that to be able to get my foot in the door. Um, after a year... I didn't do any unpaid work for other people. I like ran my own projects unpaid on certain things, but um, yeah, I think it's, it's really tricky. It's something that I think a lot about. And I think the kind of environment of unpaid internships has changed a lot in the past like nine years that I've been doing this. Um, I don't really see unpaid internships so much anymore, at least in the UK. I'm not really sure in the US if they are still a thing. Um, but I think that's a really positive step in the right direction. Because, um, yeah, I was, like, exhausted all the time as well. And just, like, having to make things work around having this day job. And it wasn't, like, it was fun because of what I was doing. But it wasn't fun in terms of, like, you know, my actual well-being. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And after doing Underwire and then finally getting a real full-time paid job with Open City, like explain what led you to Open City Docs. Yeah, so actually there was a few stops along the way, and there was definitely a few stops before Open City became like a full-time job. Um, so I actually met um, somebody who ended up being a colleague for many years while I was working on another project with the London Short Film Festival. Um, we did this project where we, um, for a weekend, took over a farm in like Surrey in the British countryside um, and ran this project. And that was again, all kind of volunteer run. And I met 
my future colleague Oliver and on the last day of the festival I just kind of said to him in passing when I realized that he worked at Open City like oh I really love their programming I've always wanted to like be involved there and then he gave me a call actually like a week after the thing had finished and said that they were looking for somebody to come in and run their their industry program so it was like an event production job which was the other thing that I had been kind of learning how to do for people on festivals um and so I started on this very like short-term contract which was just like making sure that everything ran smoothly communicating with speakers all of that kind of stuff um but once I was in it was the kind of place that like kept people around for a long time and had people come back quite a lot and so after that year's festival there was a few more months of me freelancing at other places and then I went in as their festival producer originally um I was actually still freelance when I was doing that job because I was working on other projects already and I didn't want a full-time job um and so for many years I was like always balancing my work week between multiple things um so I didn't actually have a full-time job until I worked at Bertha Dock House, which is a bit further down the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's go to Bertha first before Open City. Um, what is Bertha Dock House for people who are not familiar with it? Yes, uh, so Bertha Dock House is one of the world's only documentary dedicated cinemas. Um, so the ones I know of are Bertha Dock House in London, the Ted Rogers Hot Dog Cinema mm -hmm. in Toronto, and then there is also a project in Italy somewhere and the name escapes me right now, but there are there are three that I know of, but essentially Bertha Dock House is a single screen cinema that only shows documentaries every day. Um, and yeah, it's funded by the Bertha Foundation, hence the name, um, but the cinema itself is dedicated to supporting um, all forms of documentary. So um, we showed stuff that was more journalistic, we showed stuff that was more experimental, we showed you know, new releases, we showed older work, um, and it was a really, yeah, really exciting program, and it's still, yeah, still running, so if you're over in London, please go and check it out. Mm -hmm. And, like, is, does Bertha host, like, a similar, like, seasonal festival, or, like, I read online, it's, like, a year-round festival of sorts? Yeah, the way that we approached it um, was definitely, like, a year-round festival, rather than a once a year festival we definitely hosted other people's festivals in the space um so anyone else in london who was showing documentary would often partner with us and so we would um host other people's festivals but our programming was very much uh yeah like a year-round festival in the sense that we showed a lot of stuff that didn't have uk distribution um that you wouldn't be able to see anywhere else in the uk um, we would travel to festivals much like festival programmers do and look at other people's programs and put together seasons or pick individual films that we thought really deserved to um, meet with London audiences. And yeah, we did a lot of like special events, um, a lot of Q&As and having filmmakers when they were in town come um, and talk about their film. We did a lot of like masterclasses and stuff that was really for filmmakers. Um, so yeah, it really was like a year round festival. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as a, a program manager, like, how do you figure out which film would begin the season and which one would, like, end the season? Because there are so much emotional experiences that makes, like, a festival-going experience. Yeah, it's a really interesting challenge, actually. Something we spoke about a lot was, like, how would we 
to kind of take a step back before your question of like, how would you create an experience for an audience um, who might not be engaging in the same way as they would with a festival? Like when somebody comes to a festival, they probably, you know, are here, they're focused, they're probably going to watch multiple films a day, they're going to really like dive deep and engage with stuff. Whereas in a cinema context, it's more likely that people will, you know, drop in every now and again. Um, they might just see one film from like a season or they might just see something that's on new release um, and so we were always talking about how to make the program like speak to each other but in a way that you didn't need to have seen everything for it to make sense um, we also yeah we're thinking a lot about kind of um how we could package stuff up so that people would want to come to all of those films if they did speak to each other in a more like specific way um and that was kind of like an ongoing challenge really of like asking people to give that much time up in their home city um to come and engage with that stuff um and a lot of that was around actually not the programming but how we spoke about the programming um and how we communicated it to our audience um, because in terms of a season itself, like you would approach that, um, how you would approach any kind of uh, standalone project, I suppose, of thinking about those rhythms that you're talking about of like, this is the opening and this is the closing. And we would program with that in mind while also just knowing in the back of our mind that not everybody would come to every single thing. And so there might be some extra context in our introductions, for instance, or in the program notes that we would give out at screenings and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting challenge to have festival programming year round at a cinema venue. Um, I mean, it was great that it was in London because there's so many audiences in London that want to see that kind of work and want to engage with it. And so we were lucky. Um, it's also like it's a 55 seat cinema, so it's it's relatively small. So, yeah, there's also that element of it. Yeah, I was wondering like the, the capacity of it. Thank you for pointing that out. And like when you do this year-round program like do you do your best to bring in filmmakers like for the q a's and the master classes or it varies depending on their availability yeah i mean we so it's obviously different in terms of budget to how you would normally budget with a festival um so a lot of it was relying upon filmmakers who were either based in london or were coming through London for another reason. Um, sometimes we would work on specific things where we would have more of a budget and we would bring someone over. And then we would try to like make the most out of having them there. So that's when we would maybe do, like if there was somebody that we were really interested in their practice, then we would do a masterclass and work with a lot of the um, like film schools in London. Often that's how we would approach the masterclasses and then do a screening in the evening with a Q&A that's kind of more public facing. Um, so yeah, we were, again, we were kind of lucky being in London. Lots of filmmakers live there or come there to work on projects, you know, if, if their editor is based in London, something like that. Um, also, when we were working with distributors, often they're traveling a filmmaker over. And so, yeah, we, we were never kind of short of filmmakers. And we also used to do a lot of, then it was Skype. Now, I suppose it would be Zoom um, Q&As with people as well. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now let's, let's go back to Open City. Like, explain a little bit of that festival for those who are unfamiliar with it. Yeah, so Open City is a festival. Um, when I was there, it was really focused on the art of nonfiction. Um, and we really focused on 
having a very international program. Um, we were always looking for authored work that engaged with the form. Um, it was a curated program. So it was 25 new films and then shorts programs, retrospective programs around that as well. We had competitions. Um, and the festival was funded originally by the university, so University College London. Um, it actually came out of the anthropology department there. And so that was always like an interesting dynamic that the festival wasn't run by anthropologists, but had this kind of like context and framework of engaging with nonfiction filmmaking through the lens of anthropology and ethnography. Um, and so it was quite a it was a festival that was really interested in speaking to filmmakers and building that community for nonfiction filmmakers, both in the UK and internationally, um, but was also kind of framed through this academic angle of talking about the work with a more kind of um, rigorous um, theoretical approach to it. So yeah, it, I think that's probably the best way to explain Open City. Um, so it's Open City also is not just a festival. There's also a school attached to it where they run filmmaking courses and they support postgrad courses at the university. So we were also training filmmakers um, in nonfiction storytelling, um, which yeah, you could do on varying levels of engagement. And then we had the festival year round. We also did, sorry, the festival wasn't year round, the festival once a year in September. We then did year round programming. So we would do partnership events throughout the year. Um, and while I was there, I also started a development lab um, called Assembly. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, now is a perfect way to segue into Assembly. Like what made you um, founded this documentary lab? Yeah, so Assembly was born out of um, a conversation that we would always have at Open City was about um, when we were looking for these films that were kind of, you know, creatively made, coming with a strong filmmaking voice at their centre, um, we, every year, there was never enough of them. Um, obviously, like, we showed um, a limited programme, and so that was great, but we were always lamenting that we wished that there was more of these films in the world. And so Assembly was born out of a kind of desire to put our money where our mouth was, I suppose. Um, it also came from a lot of conversations with filmmakers about what would actually be useful for them. So I spent a lot of time meeting with filmmakers and talking to them about the current like industry landscape. And if they were working on a first or second time feature, which was the kind of group of people that we chose to focus on, um, what would be helpful to them. And the thing that I just kept hearing was that development as a part of the process was really under supported. Um, so there is very little funding for the development process and especially for projects that are more kind of artistic or creative leaning. Um, and this just kind of contributes to the barriers within the industry as to who gets to make films, because if you, don't, if you're not in a position where you can fund yourself or you can, you know, not work for six months or you can work a day job, but take some time off and work on evenings and weekends on a film project. If you're not in that position, then chances are your project will never get off the ground because there's not funding available for that very important part of the process, which is like researching, thinking through what your vision for the project is um, and really focusing on 
developing the project before you move into production. Um, and so, yeah, it came out of a lot of conversations where people felt that there wasn't enough support at that stage. Um, so we decided to start a development lab. Um, we did it for kind of emerging filmmakers first or second time feature because we felt like that was a useful um, kind of guide so that everybody would be in a similar place in their filmmaking journey. Um, it was purposefully small. So assembly took, in the first year it took seven um, and the second year it took six projects. Um, and it was designed to be small so that we could do a lot of like um, handmade matchmaking. So each project was paired with a mentor who was a filmmaker um, and those mentors weren't invited until we had the selected projects. Um, and they were each handpicked based upon the filmmaker, the project, where they were in the process, what they felt that they needed in terms of guidance. Um, the program was also built in response to the seven or six projects. Um, so each of the talks that happened were like very specifically meant to be responding um, to what people were struggling with in their projects. Um, and also it was designed to be a very supportive um, communal space rather than a kind of large scale, more like factory line approach of, of saying like, there's only one way to make a film. I really wanted to take the opposite approach of that, of making space for filmmakers to decide how they wanted to make their film and not just be told by, you know, industry gatekeepers like me, this is how you have to make a film. And so, yeah, a lot of thought went into like scale and resources. Um, there was also a fund attached to assembly, um, a winning, there was a pitch and then whoever was selected as the winner of the pitch got 10,000 pounds which was like no strings attached development money, they could use that for whatever they wanted. Um, and that was also very important to me that there is that there was money attached in it, because I think there are a lot of training programs that are, you know, for various reasons, don't have money attached. And especially because the lab was built to respond to the fact that there is no funding at development. I thought it was really important that we actually do give money um, and, yeah, so we covered like all of the expenses as well for people to come. They got a per diem while they were there, so it didn't cost them anything to take part in it. And then one project got a chunk of money um, to be able to go forward mm -hmm. with. So were you in charge of selecting some films like an upcoming Ryrek Doctor Memory movie, the inventory of Ileana Coleman? Were you in charge of that or was there a committee involved in selecting the final seven or six? So there was a committee, but I read both years, I read every single application that came in. Um, I did all of the first reads. Um, so we had 500 applications in the first year, and I think it was about 400 the second year because we were moving into the pandemic at that point. Um, and so I read everything that came in, and then I had a committee of um, other kind of industry members whose opinions I really respected. Um, and who came from quite different backgrounds. They read um, a shortlisted list of projects and gave their thoughts. And then we did interviews with, um, I think it was normally between like 15 to 20 projects we met with and spoke through like what they actually wanted. Um, and a lot of the decisions came down to who it would actually be most useful for to come into the program. Um, so there was lots of like amazing projects that we didn't take um 
because there was this focus on making sure that it was actually useful for filmmakers rather than us necessarily just picking the things that felt the most likely to succeed. We actually wanted to, yeah, have it be useful to people. So it was a, a committee who decided the final projects. Mm -hmm. I know the assembly is on hiatus. Is this something they want to bring back with True Falls or in some other form in the future? Yeah, it's definitely something I want to bring back. I'm not sure if it will find a home at True False. I mean, the big thing with these proje projects is always funding and what's available. Um, and so, yeah, hopefully it will come back in the future. Um, but it's currently on hiatus because I yeah got this job with True False and Ragtag and didn't have any time to think about um, assembly for the time being. So um, it's still there. It still exists. Um, in my mind um and hopefully one day it will come back into the world yeah and uh, what have let you move to true falls and the middle missouri because i did not know the international impact of true falls to like my senior year of college and like how was true falls first introduced to you and then i thought oh i want to like take over david wilson um it's funny that you frame it that way um so I felt to dethrone David Wilson um so I actually met David in 2014 I think he came to Open City when I was working there he was on a jury um and I'd heard about the festival from other people because uh Truffles had a sister festival for a while called uh, Broncage which took place in Jersey which is an island just off of the UK um and I knew a lot of people that worked on that festival because the film festival world in the UK is very small um and I always heard kind of like magical things about this festival where you know there was music before every screening and every filmmaker came and it was just a big party for four days um but with like incredible programming um, and so I met David when he came to Open City and kind of heard a bit more from him what it takes to run something like this. Um, and we actually took a lot of kind of lessons from True False into running Open City in terms of how we were thinking about things. Um, so that it was kind of like a lovely full circle moment when I then applied for this role, um, because there's also there's not like that many film festivals in the world that do this very like specific thing that's really interesting to me of like this specific uh kind of approach to nonfiction, this specific focus on filmmaker forward but also with true false this very interesting mix of public audience with industry audience and thinking about how those two things um come together to make um the kind of wonderfulness that is the true false weekend um i got to come in 2019 to the festival and see it for myself um and then yeah it was kind of a no-brainer that i had to apply for the job mm -hmm. and what were some new things you wanted to do with true false as it's already an established international curated doc fest yeah it's always interesting when you come into something that is already doing everything quite well um, and it definitely comes down to thinking more about like the nuances of things um, I definitely wanted to bring more of a focus on like an international perspective because I myself am obviously not American um, and I think there was um, that definitely played out in the 2022 festival which was my first edition um, I think also one of the things that I'm still thinking through is like thinking about 
um, what inclusivity looks like for the festival in thinking about, you know, what does a true false film mean? What does a true false filmmaker mean? Who are we maybe like feel, making feel less welcome by the way that we do things? And how do we actually make sure that we're being very open and very um, inclusive to everybody? Um, and that might change, in fact, the profile of the programme and who's coming and who's engaging. Um, I think I also want to spend a lot of time and energy on our artist support programmes. So not necessarily, you know, the festival itself, but thinking about how we support filmmakers outside of the festival and before they get to the point of um, of showing a film with us. Um, so that's kind of like a longer term goal that I have with the organization. Mm. Um, so yeah, but I, I came in with a very like intentional goal of not making huge changes in my first year because I wanted to see how everything worked um, and then make informed decisions about what to take forward and what not to take forward based upon like my actual experience of having done it for the first time. So mm. yeah, so this, yeah one of those things they want to like move forward like where you were to which you were able to do in open city was audio documentaries like what do you love about audio documentaries and try to have the space at true false and ragtag film society yeah yeah that's it's sadly something that like didn't quite work out for my first year but something that i definitely want to think about so there was a big focus at open city of approaching um a kind of like cross form idea of what nonfiction storytelling was. And so we would showcase films, um, audio documentaries and cross media projects. Um, so when I joined True False, we already had film and cross media because we have Control Alt Shift, which is the cross media exhibition. Um, but the other art forms were visual art and music. Um, but yeah, I think there's this really interesting space and it, the festival has a history of supporting audio documentary of doing work with podcasts. And um, I know when they had the uh, festival in the park, there was um, like a drive-in radio station project. Um, and I think I'm really interested in just all forms of nonfiction storytelling. And I think audio documentary, which is kind of like a weird term, like most people know that as podcasts, but it's, um, or radio, I suppose you could call it. Um, but obviously, when you say podcast, different people have different ideas of what that means, depending on what they listen to. So I'm not talking about like two hosts talking about a subject. I'm talking about things that you might hear on Radio Lab or um, Love and Radio or Invisibilia, which are kind of these uh, very rich audio stories. Um, that much like creative nonfiction filmmaking use all of these interesting storytelling methods to um yeah share this kind of story of reality with an audience um so yeah i'd love to moving forward find a space um for how that's going to work at true false what we did at open city was play audio documentaries like you would play short films so before features when there was space and when it made sense curatorially we would play audio documentaries and on screen there would be a slide that said close your eyes and listen um, and then you would kind of sit in the darkness and listen to this piece and then the film would start afterwards so mm. yeah do you imagine that when you curate audio documentaries there'll be like an audible committee like a screening committee um 
I would love to develop it to that stage. I think it kind of depends like um, what level of presence it has. Um, at Open City, it was normally kind of five projects a year. So it was quite kind of small and compact. Um, but also I would love to um, include more like international audio documentaries. A friend of mine runs a project called Radio Atlas, which actually did an event at True False a couple of years ago, the year that I came. Um, and that project is all about subtitling audio documentaries that aren't in the English language, um, which is something that we don't really think about of like the barrier to listening to anything that isn't in the English language that's made in audio, like subtitles in film is just so, um, kind of established as a system um, but there's so much incredible like creative work being made you know outside of the UK Canada and the US um, and Australia actually has a strong audio industry as well but yeah I'd be curious to maybe bring in some experts from other parts of the world as well to kind of um, expose me to stuff that I've never listened to before. Mm -hmm. And uh, like as the artist director of True Falls. Um, some people do not conflate with the executive director of the organization. Like, what are like your re responsibilities as the artistic director of both the festival and the cinema itself? Yes. So I suppose artistic director is best explained as the head of the curation department. So I touch anything that kind of speaks to curation on both projects, so cinema and festival. Um, on the cinema side, it looks kind of different to the festival. I work with a really talented programmer called Ted Rogers. He does the kind of day-to-day -day programming of the cinema. Um, and I work with him to think through more kind of big picture questions about strategy and audience. Um, I do get to get involved with programming on seasons and things like that, but um, Ted is really like the star of the show when it comes to programming on that side. Um, on both projects, a large part of my job is connecting curation with the wider organization. So I spend a lot of time talking to colleagues about what we're doing in programming and how that can be kind of transferred into each of those departments, whether that's communications and thinking about how we're going to market things or operations and thinking through like, you know, what do we want this event to feel like? What do we need logistically for this to all happen? Um, to thinking about community partnerships and education of the kind of scaffolding around these things, um, all the way down to like tech and thinking about, um, you know, what are the event needs that we have for this? Um, and so, but on the festival side, I work with a team of programmers. Um, I'm much more kind of hands-on in the programming on the festival um, because we have a collaborative programming model. So um, the programmers all uh, watch stuff that's in consideration and discuss it. And we all decide on every single film that is played in the festival. Um, so that's kind of like a big part of my job. But beyond that, it's also thinking through like what the audience experience is, what the filmmaker experience is at the festival, building those industry relationships and thinking through how can we bring in different elements of the industry into the festival um, while also maintaining, you know, a focus on our local audience and thinking about the kind of context and stuff that we need to be able to engage with them. Um, day to day, I would say it's like a lot of emails, meetings and watching films. Um, is my responsibility. Mm -hmm. 
And as you said, that you have to do with like the balance of the industry and local audiences. Like how do you merge the two and make sure they have a, a quote unquote right audience for exhibiting the, the stuff you do at Ragtag Film Society? Yeah, I think with the festival, I'm really lucky that I inherited like many years of work on developing a local audience and doing a lot of work on media literacy. So the audience that is from, you know, Columbia or wider Missouri is really, it's really interesting. They're very open-minded and very um, educated on how to think about film. So often, like, even if people don't like a film that they see personally, they know how to assess what, what it's trying to do, what it did well, what it didn't do well, so they can maybe understand like why they didn't like it rather than just going straight to the idea that it's a bad film. Um, and I think also people, most local audiences who I talk to here, like understand their own personal preferences more from years of going to the festival. And so people know like, oh, maybe I don't wanna go and see, um, a film that's a bit more like glossy maybe I don't want to go and see the films that were at Sundance maybe I do want to go and see something that's more kind of minimal or more experimental or vice versa like maybe they know that they're interested in a particular kind of cinema and they know how to find that in the program um, but in terms of thinking about what that means when you bring industry into the space like it's an interesting um dynamic where again I've really benefited from a lot of thought being put into that before I started of making the festival feel um, relatively flat in terms of like access um, there's not you know there's not press and industry screenings that only press and industry can attend there's not a video library where you can go into a room and watch films on computers like everybody watches films together in the cinema um, and I know, for instance, that the filmmakers that come and show their work really, really appreciate meeting with that local audience and hearing those questions and seeing how people are reacting to them, because that's not always the case at film festivals when you're traveling with your work. Um, and there's a really like, I think, a real value in in the fact that the festival isn't trying to be a market or an industry festival in the fact that it's really embracing of that local audience and like empowering of the local audience even when thinking about how we approach q a's like we don't um the person who's on stage asking a question the ringleader is what we call them um they ask a couple of questions and then open up to the audience kind of straight away so that's also a very concerted thing that's um, been thought through about how to make local audiences feel like they have ownership over this thing mm -hmm. um, so yeah and then it's interesting in thinking through how that trickles down into the cinema which is a much broader church in terms of the kind of work that we're showing um, and we're doing a lot of thinking recently about um, who feels welcome in that space who feels ownership over that space what we can do with community partners to broaden that group out and make other people feel ownership of the space um, but yeah it's a it's a very unique in my opinion like mix of audiences at the festival um, and that's kind of what's most exciting about it I would say mm -hmm. and uh, I want to see like some secret screenings and neither nor in the future. Is this something that you want to bring that back in future editions, like for its 20th anniversary? Yeah, so neither nor will, I don't know if neither nor exactly will come back, but something in that kind of space will definitely come back. That's something that 
Um, you know, this year, as we were rebuilding after the pandemic, it, we had to be really tactical about what we what we chose to do with the program to make sure that we weren't burning people out and that we were, you know, using our resources carefully. Um, but definitely showing older work in the festival and giving it context, I think, is really important. Um, it's something I think a lot about in terms of um, when we think about the idea of innovation in nonfiction and there's a huge focus on um on new work being kind of groundbreaking when actually most work is is comes from a place where it has developed from something else and it is referencing older work and it has learned from cinematic language that other filmmakers have used um, and so that's definitely something that will be present in the festival moving forward um, secret screenings is something I'm still still unsure how I feel about so I won't give you a firm answer either way yet on that one that's fine like I never really attended one I just first heard of it like the year that ended so that's fine that there no need to be for that but also did you ever have to worry that true false would go remote because the Sundance moved like did you have to worry about that yeah, that was definitely like a scary moment uh, when Sundance moved online. Um, we had obviously been seeking a lot of medical advice. Um, we have a COVID committee on our board. Um, and what we had been hearing when Omicron kind of reared its head in December was that March would be a dip in COVID. Um, that was obviously you know, it didn't feel necessarily very safe to trust that. And so we did talk about what our contingency plans were and what the festival could look like if we did need to shut down. Um, but we ended up getting incredibly lucky um, and that was the case. Um, we, yeah, fingers crossed, um, although it'd be a bit late to hear about it now, we didn't hear about any reported cases from the festival. And um, we obviously had um, a vaccine requirement and a mask mandate inside screening rooms, um, which I think really helped make people feel comfortable to come out to the cinema again. Um, but I think, yeah, every festival, like I feel really bad for the festivals in like over the winter because it does just feel like each year there's a new spike and a new uh, variant and it's really unnerving to work in festivals right now. And I'm sure that's true for like to work in anything with live events where you want to bring people together. Um, but we just got really lucky this year. Mm -hmm. Well, thank God. But also, like, I know why, but I know that some people may not understand, but how come True False is like an only in-person festival, whereas Sundance, South By, and even Tribeca now have hybrid editions? Yeah, so it was something that we thought a lot about. Um, there was an online element to the program in 2021, which was the Teleported Fest, which was very specifically not just an online festival in the same model, like Teleported really tried to translate the feeling of being true false into people's homes. Um, it was also a lot of work. Um, and so our main consideration was actually like, what is fair on our team and what do we have the resources to be able to do? Um, I think True False is such a special physical experience. Um, it really is about people coming together. It's about everyone feeling, you know, equal in that cinema space. Um, it's about getting to meet with filmmakers as an audience member. Um, and so to try and mimic that online is a really hard proposition. Um, we're also not a, like, we're not a world premiere festival. So in terms of 
um, the function of our festival. We really are like a community space and a public audience space. And so to go online with that, um, it, there's just kind of different considerations than for a festival like Sundance or South by. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, a lot of it just came down to, you know, the people that we have, whether it was fair to ask them to do essentially two festivals. Um, obviously online opens up a whole world of accessibility, um, but we also wanted to approach that sustainably um, in thinking about our staff and what we could actually do and whether the films that we were supporting needed that from us or not. So yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of factors in that decision making. Mm -hmm. I have some more questions, but I know that we're running out of time. But before I let you go, is there a film they want to recommend that's little to unknown to many audiences? I would really recommend more people watch Eventually from True Falls 2022. But I feel bad because I'm not sure that people can stream it anywhere. Um, but if you do find it playing somewhere, I would seek it out. Um, it is a Danish documentary uh, from a student filmmaker. Um, it was, yeah, a real, it's the kind of film that when I first watched it, I was just like, I want to talk to people about this film. Um, it follows um, a kind of filmmaking experiment that the filmmaker went on with two people who had been uh, in an on again, off again, situationship so shall we say for a number of years um they decided to come together and recreate separately important moments from their relationship and then come back together and watch them um, as a way to try and kind of bridge this gap between their experiences um, and force them to have a conversation about what the future of their relationship was um, i really love films about love um and this one just yeah i think it's incredibly resonant to anybody who has tried to date um as a millennial so yes i'd recommend seeking out eventually mm -hmm. i hope that i get to see it soon somewhere like i know that i don't know it's u.s distribution but yeah thank you for um painting time away from whatever you're doing and i hope you have a good day thank you so much for having me Today's concluding thought, walking and sprinting. I used to walk and sprint 30 minutes each way from my apartment and back starting last month. I did it because I wanted to get my day going through exercises and find a consistent weight loss routine. Also, it was exhilarating to see the city's ways and walks of life. I did not expect to hit a curved path once I got further on one side. It was crazy to see marathon participants practice for the event. I did a run on the marathon day and it was fun to go in the same direction as the participants. I honestly did not have the time to practice or have the proper conditioning to run for several miles. Unfortunately, I stopped doing it because it takes a lot of effort. I get tired quickly and realize that I can't do it anymore. I will have to check Google Maps on the distance to get to my place, it was not as delightful as I had envisioned. I used to jog, but after seeing a video about how jogging is ineffective compared to walking and running, I decided to walk with a few sprints. Unfortunately, I did not make as many sprints as I intended, 
and I had to rely on patience in walking to finish the route. I also noticed how I was not losing weight in a consistent direction as I was not asserting my effort 100% or brisk enough. Though it was hard for me to not do these 2 to 3 mile walks each way, I did not stop exercising. I do more effective and less time consuming workouts at the gym nearby my apartment. I spend a little time on either the elliptical or treadmill machines to start each day. After that warm up, I alternate workouts on different sections of my body. One day will be upper body day, the next will be leg day, after that will be a full body day, and so on. There's an excellent variety in altering yet staying regular exercises. I hope that I can lose weight more efficiently. On top of that, I'll go on a calorie deficit. I don't always have to eat when I want, which will make me stay committed to the end goal. I wish some people could see calorie deficits as a positive rather than a negative, saying that you're starving to death. To those haters, I still eat breakfast every day and I'll follow my stomach when I need to eat. It is simple as that. I always hope for an efficient workout plan and one that can make me maintain my schedule and priorities. I can't wait to accomplish this long-term goal, and that's today's concluding thought. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Print. This episode's music includes Continuum Mutation, courtesy of Kama, and Shimmering by Rafa Orchestra, courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. This episode is co-produced and edited by Anish Katu and Edward Frumpkin. Please check out this episode's notes and links, as well as reviews, award, and seasonal predictions and essays written by yours truly at realprint.org. That is R-E-E-L print.org. This is Edward Funkin signing off.